0: On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to chat about social media. And I tell you why we're going to chat about social media, because two new studies are out. One saying social media basically has no impact at all on teenagers, on their well-being, on their self-worth, on those kind of things. The other says suicides among teenagers are skyrocketing. And the main cause? Believed to be social media. Which one is right? Also, two-thirds... Of all maternal deaths, babies and mothers who have given birth and now passed away happen in sub-Saharan Africa. An obstetrician gynecologist who is visiting McMaster from Uganda joins us to talk about this problem. It is a problem. You're going to want to listen to this. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. If you ever want to be thoroughly confused, go online, type in any word you choose, doesn't really matter, and then add the word study as the next word in the Google search line and choose a popular topic, coffee or wine or salt or fat or exercise or whatever. uh, You'll get tons and tons and tons of hits. And then when you do, you will inevitably get stories about studies that say one thing, that thing is really good for you. And at the same time, go scroll down a story or two later and something will say, oh, that same thing is terrible for you. Two glasses of wine will help your heart be healthy and it'll give you a long, happy life, one story will say. and Then you read the next one and says, well, no, actually, if you have wine every day, you'll become an alcoholic and it will kill you very quickly. You get the idea. It's impossible to understand which studies you're supposed to pay a lot of attention to these days, which brings us to what we want to talk about today because a new study, another one. We were just, from the last segment, we are talking about out of the UK. Well, this one's out of the UK as well. A new study out of the UK says the effects of social media on teenagers is tiny, largely insignificant. Maybe 1% of a teen's well-being comes from social media involvement and feedback from that, which is great, until I scroll down, as I said, and I read another study that came out this week saying the suicide rate among young girls is surging. And what do the authors of this study attribute to this sudden rise? Social media, of course. Here's a quote from them. Compared with boys, girls use social media more frequently and are more likely to experience cyberbullying, says one of the authors. So who do we believe? What do we believe? Well, Let's turn to someone who might be able to help us here. Dr. Jean Twangy is a professor of psychology at San Diego State University. She's the author of more than 130 scientific publications and six books, including iGen, Why Today's Super Connected Kids Are Growing Up Less Rebellious, More Tolerant, Less Happy, and Completely Unprepared for Adulthood. Dr. Twenge, thanks for doing this today. Thank you. So uh, we've got two competing studies that have come out almost at the same time, one saying social media is irrelevant and insignificant, and one saying, well, we've got kids that are killing themselves because of it. Who's right?
1: Well, um, I suppose the one piece of good news is, unlike wine and coffee, nobody is saying that spending five hours a day on social media is actually good for you. (laughs) The debate is between whether it makes very little difference or whether it makes a big difference. So that study out of the U.K. that concluded that the difference was tiny, I think we probably shouldn't draw many conclusions from that paper until the researchers have dug into the data. because This is the same group of authors that said there's no meaningful results in a data set that showed a doubling in suicide attempts from light to heavy use of electronic devices. So until we really know what's going on with that data set, I would reserve judgment.
0: Because when we see these two things for anyone who would stumble upon these it, it it absolutely makes this completely confusing, especially if you're a parent of a teenager and you're trying to decide whether you should put some sort of controls over this or not.
1: of course, and I, you know I have three kids myself, um, and when I want to know the answer to you know what to do as a parent that's what I'll do a lot of times is, is try to see what the data says, and unfortunately, as you point out, sometimes it, it can be confusing so I think the good thing is you can take a compromised position of, you know, technology is great. It's not going away. We're going to all use technology in some way or another, but let's limit how many hours in the day we're going to use it, whether that's us as adults or thinking about our kids or thinking about our teenagers, that we want to use technology for what it's good for, you know, an hour or two a day. And then set it aside and go play outside, have a conversation with a friend, get enough sleep, do all of those things that we know are good for mental health, where there's no debate that it's good to get exercise and talk to friends, and that, does, that, that is a good thing for mental health.
0: The funny part about what you just said is that it sounds like uh, whether the studies are out there or not, you are simply applying good common parental logic to this as opposed to leaning entirely on what some academic or academics may say.
1: I think that is often a good parenting strategy of just setting limits. However, you know, you're right. If you go online, you'll see opinions all over the gamut. Some people will be like, nope, no technology at all. And then there's this other extreme people say, no, just hand the 8-year-old a a smartphone, and and they can spend as much time on screens as they want. And if if that sounds like a ridiculous position, it's actually, as far as I can tell, the position of most parents these days of, oh, you know, it's just technology, whatever, everybody uses it, everybody's addicted to it, who cares, I want, you know, to be able to contact my eight-year-old at school, so I'm going... To give him or her a smartphone.
0: But not even just parents, although parents should probably be the first line of defense. In our school, certainly up here, we have tablets and we have the ability for students to have those things in the classroom. Teachers are now saying, apparently, and okayed by the administration, saying, sure, classroom, home, whenever, there's never seemingly for a lot of kids a moment that it's not with them.
1: Yeah, and you know, most of these studies are looking at use outside of school. We don't even know yet, Um, if there are beneficial or detrimental effects for using lots of screens during the school day. I mean, we do know that having access to individual devices like phones and and tablets that have come from home, those uh, tend to interfere with learning, and we know that from uh, a bunch of studies. But whether the ones that, you know, the school's giving it to you, you're supposed to be doing work on it, it's kind of unclear at this point whether those are beneficial or not.
0: The one study that says that it was detrimental because of the suicide race. Now, I don't want to be flip, and I don't mean to sound like I'm being flip here, but is there any reason to believe that social media bullying is worse than old-fashioned, more simple bullying that happened once upon a time?
1: Yeah, there there is. So neither one of those types of bullying is a good thing, obviously. And kids who are bullied, whether that's physically at school or cyber bullied. Those kids are, are obviously going to be at higher risk for depression and uh, for suicide attempts. But the kids who are cyberbullied are at an even higher risk than those who are physically bullied, which is kind of surprising in a way. You'd think, you know, physical bullying would be worse, but cyberbullying tends to be more social and relational. has a bigger impact on girls. Um, girls are more likely to be depressed in the first place. And you can't get away from cyberbullying a lot of teenagers that's where they conduct their social lives is online on their phones and when they're being bullied in that they can't get away from it 24 7 it's not like you know i got beat up at school but i can go home and play with my friends there and with my family who loves me and have a break from it you can't get a break from cyberbullying
0: you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml
1: chatting with Dr. Jean Twangy.
0: She is a San Diego State psychology professor, the author of six books, including iGen, why today's super connected kids are growing up less rebellious, more tolerant, less happy, and completely unprepared for adulthood. We're chatting about two studies. We'll call them competing studies. They weren't done at the same place or the same knowing probably the other one was doing it. But one says social media has really no impact on kids. And the other says suicides are going up. And a lot of it probably has to do with social media. And Dr. Trangy, I found it really interesting in the study that said no impact, that this is really inconsequential to t- teenagers' lives. Uh, and, I, and to be fair, I looked at this study from 30,000 feet as a, just as an overview. But it seems as though much of the information here came from students offering their assessment of how social media affected them. Do you think most teenagers think social media is having or could have an impact on them?
1: Yeah, you know, it really runs the gamut. Um, there are some teens who will tell you, no, social media is awesome. It's the way I communicate with my friends. It's great. But then I've noticed in giving talks at schools, which I often do, there's a lot of middle and high school students who will, who will tell me, you know, I don't know. It's, it's really not the best thing. I feel depressed after, I, after I'm on it for too long. There's so much competition. It's very stressful. So it just depends.
0: But if you tell your parents, let's say, that this is a problem or you're being bullied or whatever else, probably they then step in and do something and maybe take it away. And now you find yourself with your lines of communication cut off, your social life cut off, you're no longer connected. It's, it's, a, it's a conundrum for a teenager.
1: It is because, you know, that is I, – I kind of heard two different things from a lot of teens. Number one, please don't take away my phone. You know, it's my lifeline to my friends. But then they also would say, almost in the same breath, but I know I'm on it too much. So it really is about finding that balance, not taking away the phone, but you know, maybe putting some parental controls on it so it doesn't work after 9 o'clock at night so it doesn't interfere with sleep, or you can only use um, – some. Social media apps for an hour a day. Just put some reasonable controls on it.
0: Are you an outcast in 2019 if you are a teenager who doesn't have some sort of smartphone or iPhone or cell phone of any kind?
1: Well, um, you're usually in the minority, but that doesn't necessarily have to mean that you're an outcast because there are ways around these things. You can still keep in touch with friends in other ways, so maybe. You know, if you don't have a smartphone, you could have a social media account that you use on a computer. Or if you do have a smartphone, but you don't have social media, you can text your friends. You know, there's there's different compromise positions that you can take.
0: The really interesting, I mean, there's a lot of interesting parts about this, but especially with the study, because I, like you, my logical side says, well, it seems, of course, that there's going to be some kind of impact. And, and the Nationwide Children's Hospital uh, in the States reported, a spike in suicides among teenagers in the month after the Netflix show, 13 reasons why was released. That was a report that came out in April and that was a show about suicide and about response. It to me, and now not saying that social media, but again, seems to me logic would say there are external influences that really do influence teenagers, maybe more than adults or other people.
1: Yeah. And I think the big picture too is that we've seen an enormous shift in the way teens spend their time outside of school and in how they conduct their social lives. Because that's another thing I found in the in the studies that I've done on um you know really big surveys of teens that have been done every year. Teens are spending a lot less time with each other face to face, whether it's just Mm. hanging out with their friends or going to the movies or riding around in a car. They do that a lot less than teens did 10 years ago. And, of course, we know that they're doing more. They're spending more time on their phones, texting and using social media to communicate with their friends. And during that same 10-year time period, we also know what happened to their mental health. It plummeted. Um, That happiness went down. Life satisfaction went down. um, And then all of the stuff that we don't want to see started to skyrocket like depression and suicide attempts.
0: If you, I mean, you are a parent, but if you were to do it all over again, would you ever contemplate the idea of saying to your kid, you know what, No, we're just not going to have social media? You're not going to be on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram until you're 18, or is that just crazy from a parent's perspective?
1: Well, you know, it's going to depend a lot on the kid and on the family and, and on the situation. Um, but my oldest is 12. She doesn't have a smartphone and she doesn't have social media. Um at least here in the U.S., it is actually not legal to have a social media account in your own name before you turn 13. It's never enforced, but that's actually the law. Um, Of course, you know, having a smartphone is now very common. The average age is now 10 to get your first smartphone and is probably still heading downward. But, you know, that's one way to do it. That's one way to try to sidestep the issue is at least let's put it off. Maybe when you're 16, maybe when you're 14, we can talk about this. But when you are 12 and in grade 6 or grade 7, just too early.
0: Mom, I hate you. I hate you. You won't let me get a phone, Mom. Anyway, we know how we... I'm very lucky that I have not yet
1: heard that.
0: (laughs) We know how it goes with some. I want to point out to people, by the way, in addition to the book iGen, which you can find... Uh, online at, at Dr. Twenge's uh, website, and I'll give that to people in a second. She's also written a book called Generation Me, Why Today's Young Americans Are More Confident, Assertive, Entitled, and More Miserable Than Ever Before, and The Narcissism Epidemic, that's another book, Living in the Age of Entitlement. Uh, i got to tell you, one of these days, because these are all unbelievable topics, and you're a great guest, we've got to book you for a full hour or something, because we could go through so much stuff. I love having you on. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Uh, you can find all that if you're interested in these topics. www. jean j e a n twenge dot com. All of her books are there. You can order them all. You can see them all. Uh, uh, unbelievably great topics, fascinating stuff, and she is uh, she is great at this. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was, um, well, last year around this time, a little later than this last year, I came to you, the listeners, with a request. And that was that after a trip to Uganda, my wife and I, we had visited with a maternity hospital and it was in need of some help. There were some areas that it could use some help with. And I went to you and I said, you know what? We could really use your donations. We could really use your aid. Well, this radio station, this listenership stepped up in a big way, contributed greatly. And a whole bunch of the mattresses in this maternity ward were able to be fixed as a result of that. It was a great thing. Well, this week, one of the obstetrician gynecologists who was involved with that is in Hamilton to speak at McMaster University. She is a, as I say, an OBGYN. She is a senior teaching faculty member at Makari University Hospital in Kampala. She's also the director of the Mother Baby Friendly Hospital program with Save the Mother. Save the Mothers being the program that we worked with to put those donations forward. Her name is Dr. Eve, Eve Nakambembe, and she joins me now. Doctor, thank you for doing this today.
2: Oh, thank you very much for having me.
0: When we are talking about maternal health in the developing world, in Uganda and other parts of Africa, it, is all, it always seems to be such a, a, a huge thing, to uh, such a huge obstacle, such a huge problem. Why is it such a big problem there?
2: I think because of the global health disparities, because uh, many places in Africa are low-resource settings. And with resource, is everything. It's human resource, it's infrastructure, it is systems. So with lack of such resources or having them, uh, you know, limited, you have maternal death. And that is really the death of women uh, during the process, you know, of delivery, like childbirth, uh, simply put.
0: And, I mean, certainly resources, hospital resources, as you say, doctors, other things, that is absolutely an, and obviously an issue. I was also wondering, though, about the... The philosophy the beliefs the the education do the women do many of the women there uh, want or or reach out to try and get the help, or is there a, a bit of a barrier that they don't necessarily think they need or want those services
2: there are three documented and well known barriers and it's called the three delays uh, which are really uh, the reason why women continue to Uh, die in the process of pregnancy and childbirth in low-resource settings, the first delay is at home. You know, I I was just taking a walk around Hamilton today and simple things like an address. And I was telling myself, who has an address at home, like 28, 112, you know, 42? But also uh, having the resources to move because you're expected to use your own. You know, we don't have, like, not everybody has a car the roads are not what they should be, so there's a delay at home, then the delay in transit to the hospital, and unfortunately, I mean, you visited with us, Scott, you remember the hospitals, the delay in the hospitals, because the average Ugandan hospital is very different from what the Canada hospital looks like. So it's delay at home, delay in transit, and then delays at the facility, and those are the Three main places uh, that result in the preventable maternal newborn death
0: for the women who live in the rural areas who are not in one of the cities, how do they get to one of your clinics? How do they get to a hospital
2: you know what you have to move like there's no office. you can walk, you can get on a bicycle, you can get on a motorcycle, and you know public taxi so there's no it's not like there's an ambulance or uh, there's ready private transportation for you, and I'm sure you appreciate how that can result in a big, big delay.
0: Well, and having been there, and many people won't be familiar with this, but I'll try to explain it. One of the main forms of transportation over there is something called a boda-boda, which is essentially a moped or a motorcycle. And if you are eight or nine months pregnant, that is not exactly the most convenient way to get around.
2: Mm-hmm. And on the kind of roads that you saw, because... I mean, our roads are very different from your roads, you know?
0: So if, if someone is pregnant and they're out in the rural areas, they're out and not in the cities, if they can't for any reason get to you, are doctors, are the me- is the medical system in Uganda equipped to go at all out to them to help them?
2: No, no, it isn't. It isn't. Uh, they, have, they, they have to find their way. They have to find a way of getting to us. And I think that's one of the reasons why, uh, if they're not able to reach on time, you know, because delivery is delivery, like it can't wait. If the baby is coming, the baby is coming, you know. And uh, you, that, that's why you get some of the problems that you get. They're coming very late. They're coming with uh, uh, complications. They're coming severely obstructed. Sometimes they're coming when their uterus has ruptured. And, you know, that, that's why we see what we see.
0: One of the things that is stunning about this, because if the challenges are there and the challenges to healthy uh, births and to maternal health and all the rest, you would think, oh, well, maybe then people are not going to be having as many children. And yet, uh, on average, uh, according to, I think it's the World World Bank, says Ugandan Mm -hmm. women have 5.6 children.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is coming down from seven. Scott, at the end of the day, it's child survival. You know, a mother will come to you in the clinic, and you ask her, "Um, so which pregnancy is this? And she says, 11, you know, 11. And then when you go, um, so how many kids do you have? She'll say, one, two, you know. So it's, uh, it's the fertility rate, but it's also will the children survive. But also, in case the children survive, you know, unlike here where people have insurance, you have, you know, your assets, in Africa, <laughs> children that's your security. Your children are your security, you know?
0: So you uh, want, it's, in, it, it's not accidental. It's intentional that people want large families.
2: Yeah, yeah, people want large families, yes. Uh, but also there is so much more than people just wanting large families. It's access to so many things, information inclusive. And honestly, that is why I think that... Uh, Places like McMaster University, where the staff and the faculty really get interested in global health, and you know, they come over to Uganda and they let their residents come. We, we, we have opportunity to get exposure, you know, how else can we contribute to global health? How else can we address, you know, the, in, you know, the inequities which exist in health? And uh, for me, I take the model, like, I mean, why I'm here in McMaster for this week. Um, way back in two thousand and twelve, people like the Sisters of St George, who have opened you know our eyes by offering short term fellowships, you come here and you get to appreciate the concept of safe, respectful, and dignified care and the implications social, economic you know systems development because at the end of the day it 's a multifaceted thing it 's one thing leading into the other and helping us appreciate how we can do this differently in our own countries. And and, and we are very positive, honestly. I think there is a lot that we are learning. And uh, also we are thankful for the opportunities, you know, like people telling us stories, like you giving us voice. That is a very big thing for us because I don't know how many Canadians even know uh, what Uganda, you know, looks like and the issues in Uganda but, but getting platform from, you know, like the radio station, I think all that is opportunity for us and a step in the right direction.
0: No, nobody is ever going to confuse the fact that canada and africa are not the same we are different we have different histories we have different sensibilities we have different okay. customs all those kind of things mm-hmm. but here if we were saying there are f- uh, the average woman is having 5.6 children and many of them are mm-hmm. suffering from health problems whether the children mm-hmm. or the mother the answer would be we have to introduce birth control somehow in order to do that. What is birth control a reasonable or practical thing there?
2: It is. And organizations like the UNFPA have really pushed it. But uh, honestly, Scott, it's also the culture context, you know? Like, it's beyond introducing maybe the pills and the injections. I remember one couple, like, the couple comes into, uh, you know, my office, and the husband says, excuse me she's failed to give birth i'm like okay you know like i'm I'm thinking this is really rude and then you know i'm politely talking to the mom so have you ever had a pregnancy before even if it was a miscarriage and the lady goes i have six girls you know like this now the man thinks that you know the girl child if i haven't had a boy i haven't yet had a child you know Mm. You, if that is an example of a couple, do you think such a couple will take on contraception? Maybe not. So it's culture beliefs, it's perceptions. You, it's much more than introducing birth control. It's a whole paradigm, like the paradigm shift, like people getting to appreciate. So imagine my facial expression when the lady says, "I have six girls." I don't know what I'm a girl. You know, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying, you mean girls don't matter? You know. So it's it's so many. It is so many issues that we have to deal with. But also, I mean, the access, the availability, the information, you know, uh, the affordability. Can I reach the point of birth control? If I got side effects, am I explained to? Can they be managed? So it is this. It is a little bit much more complex than uh, introducing birth control. But yes, we have a birth control centers, and we are trying to address the multifaceted issues around fertility control.
0: Yeah, multifaceted for sure. Now, Save the Mothers, and you're not exclusively, I mean, you are an OBGYN, but Save the Mothers, which was started by Dr. Jean Chamberlain, who's from Hamilton, Uh, as a Westerner coming over there, what about the idea? Is it better? Is it more plausible? Do you have more, um, I don't know, respect or belief of the people if the information is coming from a Ugandan doctor? Even though Dr. Jean Chamberlain is fantastic, if it's from someone who is from Uganda, does that carry more weight?
2: You know, a Ugandan doctor who has grown up, been born, bred, raised, everything in Uganda, may have limited, you know, appreciation than one who has gotten a certain level of exposure. You know? It's like iron sharpens iron kind of approach. There's so much that... I know in terms of my culture, my people, my continent that Jean may not know. And there's so much that Jean knows, you know, about Canada. But at the end of the day, we have a meeting point. How do we package this? You know, when she comes, she says, oh, hey, this is what you have. We left to use that in 1970. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you left to use this in 1970. So it is, um, there's a meeting point for physicians from both worlds to discuss how else else can they impact global health? How else can they address the you know the inequalities? And it's simple things like I mean I came here to McMaster and I'm asking uh, why is the medical school called Michael do you know Michael du, De Groot. Du Groot? And they're like oh yeah uh, you know somebody donated and it's us learning that you know private public partnerships, individual people standing up to address. You know a big cause is is an opportunity you know so at the end of the day i think we need to have a meeting point to address that
0: but when you talk to a mother a, a a woman who is pregnant and you are trying to say you need to come to us to get help or whatever if you say that to her as a ugandan woman or if dr jean says it as a canadian woman does your word with her carry more weight because you are one of her or does dr Jean, as a westerner who comes from canada or the states carry more weight because people believe that there is something different here
2: um i think my wa- my word honestly carries a lot of weight because i know the culture and the context
0: so okay. it's important then to have as many ugandan trained doctors as possible
2: who are exposed also because uh if, if I was only exposed to the Ugandan culture and, you know, maybe the Ugandan context, um, my ability to understand and conceptualize issues may be limited. But I think even if I'm a doctor, the more exposure I get and appreciation of issues that makes it, makes it I mean, makes me a better doctor at the end of the day.
0: Dr. Eve, I was just reading uh, in something very recently that apparently the number of the women around the world who die from maternal health issues, two-thirds of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. Is, is, is any ground being gained? Is it getting better?
2: Um, unfortunately, like, not at the rate that it should be, because if you look at, uh, for example, the, what they call the maternal mortality ratios, the number of women who die in childbirth per 100,000 life births, the global average, uh, WHO most recent report, is 216 per 100,000 life births. And if you look at Canada, it is 0.7 per 100,000 life births. If you look at Uganda, where I come from, we are at 336 per 100,000 life births. So you're looking at Uganda, 336 per 100,000 life births. And Canada, 0,7. 0,7, you know? So the decline is happening even better in countries who are already doing very well. Mm. But uh, Sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia still contribute almost 90%. Like Uganda contributes 2% of the global burden of maternal death. So, you know... That That is significant, and that's where you say, you know, if I had my one penny, my one dollar, if I had to reduce the global burden, this is one small country, much smaller than Canada, contributing 2% of the global burden of maternity. Yeah,
0: I, and I, I just read a story from a British newspaper the other day, and I, I don't even know if it's true, but it that said that there was a 39 year old woman in the area where you work who has had 38 children she may be the 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 mother who's had the most children in the world and i, I it's it's if it's true it's completely stunning i we can't even understand that here
2: we we have met her with dr jane
0: you have she, it, it's real have dr. jane it's real we've
2: actually gone to our house and you know like uh, Dr. Jane Chamberlain, of course, as a Canadian, she's like, oh, Eve, this like close to saying this is a crisis. I'm like, yeah, Dr. Jane, let's just go and find her.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, I can't even uh, believe you know, she's yeah, real. We,
2: we have met her. She's actually, we have met her, and yeah, we know the story. We we just actually didn't want to write the story, but then you know how it is somebody else called the story and wrote it. But uh, she was under our care, under actually one of the leaders we had trained, and uh, Jean really thought it was important that, uh, you know, we talk with her and, you uh, mm-hmm. story and context. So I've not just had the story. I've seen the lady. I've been to her house. And, you know, yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's what it is sometimes.
0: We have just a few seconds here, but you are in uh, Hamilton this week, not only to visit McMaster, but also to speak at McMaster. What are you talking about in your lecture at McMaster this I'm week? I'm at
2: McMaster for the, what they call the Mac Globals under Dr. Brian Cameron and really it's increasing access to global surgery like safe surgery so it's anesthesia it is surgery it's obstetrics and gynecology and getting these future doctors the residents the medical students and the faculty to appreciate the global you know inequities the disparities but also the opportunities in things like technology how can we harness technology for impact you know appropriate technology you know, how can we borrow from other models? So I'm giving the keynote on that, and I honestly look forward to that. It's going to be tomorrow at uh, Mac Globus, um under uh, you know, Dr. Brian Cameron's leadership.
0: Dr. Eve Nakabembe uh, from Uganda, f- along with Save the Mothers. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. Thanks for spending a few minutes.
2: Thank you so much for having me and pronouncing my name. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I try, it's a great name. It's, it's a poetic musical name. I love to say it. Thank you for your time. Okay, if um. You too. If anybody is interested, and, and look, this is a, it's a stunning number when you hear about it. Two thirds of the women who die in childbirth or their children who die in childbirth, two thirds are from sub-Saharan Africa. And it's not something, we don't see it here anymore. We don't, I mean, in Canada, we do. I mean, I know it happens, but not very often. But if you're interested in doing something about it. And this is not a fundraising drive. We did the fundraising drive, as I say, last year, and you, the listenership, and some of you will remember, some of you who are listening now probably contributed to that. Uh, You did a fantastic job. At that time, we had visited this hospital, and in the maternity ward, the mattresses were just completely worn out. And it was unsafe, it was unhygienic. And so we raised enough money. I asked you on the air, and you rose up, and we raised enough money to recover or replace all the mattresses in this hospital, which was just fantastic. But if you're interested in doing something else, if you didn't do that, if you want to do something, www.savethemothers, very simple, savethemothers.org and you can go there and make a contribution. Uh, The best part about this is the doctor who started this, who runs this is from Hamilton. It's an international uh, organization, but Dr. Gene Chamberlain is from Hamilton. There's a local connection here and you can have an impact on the world. If you want to, again, I'm not being paid by them. I have. No, there's no official fundraising thing here. Just if you're listening to this and you are deciding that you would like to do something, if you've got a few bucks that you would like to put towards something really, really useful and you heard Dr. Eve, the the challenges there are overwhelming and immense. There you go. www.savethemothers.org. And I am shocked to know that that story is true. About the 39 year old woman who has had 38 children, including six sets of twins. That is, um, you can go look that story up online as well. If you, uh, if, if you're a woman who's got a couple of kids at home going, man, they are driving me nuts. Okay. Go do that 19 more times. And you understand what she, could you imagine around the dining, around the dinner table when one of them is not behaving Quiet. And then it's like everybody... No, let's see. That's that's unfathomably challenging. Anyway, there we go. Savethemothers.org if you're interested. Thank you for that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Going to bring Ben into the conversation for a second. Ben's on the other side of the glass today in the studio here. He is the guy... If you've been listening since the top of the show, he's the guy who has been choosing the music today. Some of it very questionable... (laughs)
2: Most of it, very questionable.
0: So let me ask you this question. Uh, did you ever, well, when you were in high school, did you ever participate in any kind of science fair? Did you ever have to do a science projecting class or anything that would, you know, build the cream corn volcano that would explode with baking powder or any of that stuff? Did you ever have to do anything scientific? Uh, I didn't really have to build stuff. I remember dissecting a frog. Well, that okay. N- no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, I had to do that too. We had to dissect a fetal pig. And then I remember at the end when we were done, we cut off the head and the hoofs and put it into the top drawer of our French teacher's desk. So when she <laughs> opened it, it looked like it was coming out at her. She screamed and we got in trouble as we did with most days with doing stupid stuff. Anyway, no, I'm talking more about that everywhere. We have the Bay Area Science Fair here in Hamilton area where Burlington, Hamilton Students, they do science projects and they build stuff or they come up with experiments or do things. When I was in grade nine, I remembered one that I did that I don't think you could even do in school anymore. I thought it was ingenious. Then again, I've seen other people now do it since, so I probably ripped it off from somewhere. I don't know. I don't know if it was an original idea. It was to show what smoking would do to your lungs. And I had a clear bottle of like soap, liquid... uh, Detergent? Detergent, like dish detergent. Okay. And it was a clear bottle, and I popped out the little nozzle thing at the top, and it was the perfect size for a cigarette. And I put a bunch of cotton balls, white cotton balls, inside. And then in the school, my dad went with me, and it was for science, bought me a pack of cigarettes. And science. I would put it in there, light it up, and you puff the bo- the. The oh, bottle, the bottle you kind of squeeze and it. And it would and suck in the smoke. And then after like one cigarette, this is how dark the cotton balls got with all the chemicals. Then you do like five cigarettes. And I don't think you'd be allowed to light cigarettes in schools anymore, but it was science. Anyway, the reason I bring this up is because, well, in Virginia, there is a student by the name of Marcus Tarnonsky. Targonsky, pardon me. Marcus Targonsky. I remember his name because we soon may be mourning him.
2: <laughs> oh no! <laughs> the, proje- oh, no. <laughs>
0: the project that he is working on, while requiring great cre- great creativity, seems to be an early candidate for almost a surefire Darwin Award entry. <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. Uh, So Marcus apparently is a very smart guy and I absolutely hope that nothing happens to him and nothing goes wrong and this works out good as opposed to how I'm believing that it could end up going. But he has decided for a school project that he is going to break the Guinness Book of World Records mark for fastest skateboard. Okay. Okay. So now you would think, oh, Okay, fastest skateboard. We're going to go to the top of a hill and just go down. No, no, that's not what the record says. I think you can probably go on those longboards and get up. That's a different thing. This is on a flat surface. We're going to build something that makes the skateboard. So they they have designed, he and his buddies have designed and unveiled the rocket-powered skateboard with a miniature version of a jet plane engine attached to the back. <laughs> This this couldn't possibly go wrong, could it? No, no. You have a bunch of high school students, including one guy who is the front man for this, who presumably is going to be the one with all the road rash. <laughs> they have built, again, what is a miniature version of a jet engine, attached it to the back of a skateboard. I've seen enough movies to know this isn't a good idea. Everyone always goes to the rocket or a jet engine. See, I'm thinking... What if you were to accelerate it super fast, like throw it through like a baseball machine, a slingshot, even? That would be great. You could do that, but no, they've got a they've got a jet engine attached to it. Doesn't say what it's running on. It's just a jet engine. Does he have to be on it? Oh yes. Oh yeah. You know, you can't have just a wild skateboard taking off. That'll just go through someone's house. That's irresponsible. That would be that <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that would be stupid. This this isn't stupid. That would be stupid. Um, they, so the, smart kids, like no question about their intelligence up to their survival instinct. (laughs) We began to draft using a 3D modeling software to figure out how we want to lay the board out and what we want to do, he told a local TV station. All right, so good. Very bright kids, probably go into engineering if they survive this experiment. (laughs) Uh, In trial runs thus far, and they have not fully tuned the jet board yet, in trial runs, they've been able to get up to speeds of 60 miles an hour okay <laughs>
1: okay then.
0: <laughs> a normal skateboard you're maybe moving at three miles an hour on a good day with a backwind and what's 60 miles an hour like 90 kilometers an 100. hour getting close oh, 60 yeah 100 yeah. so you so he is going highway speed on a skateboard for a school science project that probably they're going to want to demonstrate in the school parking lot, which means there's a (laughs) wall somewhere that he is going to end up going into. Now He'll get a great mark on the paper that he can learn about when he comes out of his coma in a year or two. I hope not. I really hope that this goes very, very well. But nonetheless, Mr. or Mrs. Targonsky, like his parents, at some point I think might want to say, could we not just do the cream corn volcano? (laughs) Could we not just do something on puffing cigarettes into a bottle? Launching yourself at 100 kilometers an hour on a skateboard to get a good mark in your science thing. We we applaud your ingenuity, but please, let's not die over a science project. Anyway, look for him. Look for the highlights of this on Fail Army online somewhere or America's Funniest Home Video soon. To put into perspective the fastest world record for the skateboard, yes. 81.17 miles per hour. Miles per hour. That would be a downhill so and that's someone who you know, that was the late Bob Smith. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Rest in peace.
0: Rest in peace.
2: The Scott Radley
0: show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.